Well, like we said before, this is a time of Advent. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible that says we should do Advent. There's, it's not like it, but it's a, a tradition that Christians have been doing for centuries. And I think it's a good one because what it does is it forces us to remember and to remind ourselves and to sort of soak in a little bit the reality of the first coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of God into creation forever in the body and the person of Jesus. And it also, it, part of Advent is the longing for the second coming, the longing for the kingdom of God that Christ will bring after the age has been completed. But you know, when we get into passages that remind us of the birth of Jesus and go through the stories of like the chapters of Luke and the chapters of Mark, or excuse me, that Matthew, that really focus on this, we've sort of read it so many times. I mean, if you've been around for a while and watched movies, uh, you've sort of had these things where it's like a cultural myth almost that goes in one ear and out the other and you don't really pay attention to the radical worldview that's being presented to us in the story. Now, for example, when Monica read from Luke chapter one, verses 26 through 38 about the angel appearing to Mary and telling her that she's going to you know, give birth to the son of God, she's going to have a child who's gonna be called the son of the most high. She needs to name him Jesus. His kingdom will never end. He will reign forever. And she says, there's one little problem. I'm a virgin. And he says to her, well, yeah, that's gonna be because the Holy Spirit is going to conceive the child within you. This really is going to be a child where God is the father. Now, we read that. And if, you know, if you've been around a while in the sense of coming to church and you believe in God, that's, even though that's a weird thought that God is the father of a human baby, for whatever reason, we're used to it. And it doesn't surprise us as weird. We sort of don't even pay attention to it. We just sort of move on, not really thinking about what that really means. But if you believe in God, here's the thing, it's not that difficult to believe in a virgin birth. If God created the entire universe, it's not a big miracle to create a child within a virgin. That's whoop-de-doo. But the thing that I want to talk about here that you may not really have noticed, it's weird because it goes in one ear and out the other when you're not, when something doesn't match your worldview, you just don't notice it when you read it. You sort of just move on. That's just a selective perception we all have. For example, the very first sentence in verse 26 where it said, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Now, here's the thing is, wait a minute, what? God sent the angel Gabriel, and he's going to talk to Mary and tell her the birth of Jesus and how that's all going to happen, but who's Gabriel? Are we supposed to know Gabriel? Is he a character that's been introduced in the Bible story before? And the answer is yes. In fact, he's only one of two angels that are ever mentioned, ever named specifically in the Bible. We just got done with our sermon series on the Old Testament book of Daniel. And here's the thing. Da Gabriel was a major character in the book of Daniel. We, we never really covered it in our sermons because it sort of was in passages that we, we couldn't cover everything. And, and so we decided which ones to focus on and which ones not. But what we didn't focus on up here, but maybe if you read it when you were doing your study, the angel Gabriel appears to Daniel 
in Daniel chapter 8 and chapter 9 and begins this whole process of this vision of the future, telling him what's going to happen to God's people in the future. And the message is focused on sort of this ridiculous history that's so specific that most skeptical historians, Bible scholars that are skeptical that it's the word of God say, had to have been written after the fact. It has to be prophecy after the fact. It can't really be a prediction because it's just so stinking accurate. And yet we talked about this in my last sermon. If you want to go back to listen to that, I talked about all that and how do you handle that? What's the deal with that? But what's really interesting is that one of the things that Gabriel says to Daniel is in chapter nine, he says this in verse 26, he says, to Daniel, the anointed one. Now, the reason I put that in yellow is because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and this is actually written in Aramaic, but it's, a, it's like it's a cousin of Hebrew. And, and, and it's written, this word here is the Hebrew word for Messiah. So really what he's, it could be translated Messiah. The Greek word for it in the New Testament, your New Testament's written in Greek, would be Christ. So really what Gabriel is telling Daniel is the Christ, the Messiah, will be put to death and will have nothing. Now, he's telling Daniel this in 530 BC. Even if you have a skeptical view of that date, it's at least centuries before the birth of Jesus because it's in the Old Testament and Jesus quoted from the book of Daniel a lot. So it's centuries before Jesus came, he's predicting that the Christ will be put to death, which happened around 30-something AD. And then the next sentence, he says, the people of the ruler who will come, and then he's been talking about all this, and that's the Roman Empire. I'm not going to tell you how I got there, but just take my word for it. Will destroy the city and the sanctuary, which is exactly what happened in 70 AD. So here's Gabriel showing up to Daniel in chapter 8 and 9 saying, oh yeah, the Christ is going to be put to death, and after that, the Romans are going to come and they're going to completely destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple which is historically exactly what happened in 70 AD, centuries after this was written. Regardless of whatever skeptical date you want to give Daniel, you still have to say that happened, that was written centuries before the reality. And Gabriel's the one saying it because, see, Gabriel's announcing the coming of the Messiah. So what happens in Luke chapter 1, this priest is going into the temple in Jerusalem, and he's there at the altar, and appearing to him right there at the altar, we read about it in Luke chapter one, it says in verse 11, is this angel Gabriel. Now you know the priest had to know, wait a minute, because the angel says in verse 19, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. You know that Zechariah, this priest, had to know, wait, wait, I, are you the Gabriel that talked to Daniel that I've been reading about since I was a kid? Are you the Gabriel that appeared 500 and something years before? Are you the Gabriel that I'm reading about in my Bible? You're talking to me? And then he says he's going to have a son named John. And this son named John, John the Baptist, is going to bring back people to God and he's going to prepare the way for the Lord. And the Lord, of course, being Jesus, which is what John the Baptist did. And then he baptized Jesus. And began Jesus' ministry. Well, that was what the angel Gabriel told him. And then the angel Gabriel, as we saw from Monica's reading, appeared to Mary. Mary had to know too, because we know she knew the Bible, because right afterwards she says all these verses we see in the Old Testament, she had to be thinking the same thing. Wow, it's not just that I saw an angel, that I, I spoke to a character in the Bible. I spoke to a character that appeared 500 years ago, has appeared to me, 
And he's telling her, of course, what he said. You're going to be giving birth. You're a virgin. We all know that. But you're going to be giving birth because God's going to be the father of the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, whose reign will never end, whose kingdom will be forever. That's who Gabriel is. But what is Gabriel? What is Gabriel? Well, you answer because you're a religious person. You've got the answer right there. You're just wanting me because I'm dumb, right? Yeah, he's an angel. Fine. What is an angel? What's an angel? Now, you probably, if you're like any of us, you've seen artwork, you've watched shows, you have this image that comes to your mind, maybe even in your Bible that has pictures, you've got images that come to your mind of maybe naked babies with wings or some sort of you know, defenseless person that has wings that doesn't look scary at all. But every time Gabriel appears, in fact, every time any angel appears in the Bible, the first thing they have to say is don't be afraid. People are on the floor terrified. The story is they've just become utterly filled with fear when they see an angel, not a naked baby with wings. Although I gotta be honest, I'd be a little freaked out if I saw a naked baby flying around with wings. I might be a little afraid too. What the? But that's not what we're seeing when you read the Bible. There's something incredibly awesome about an angel. But what is an angel? Here's something that's interesting. I don't know how many times you think the word sin appears in the New Testament, but we all have this image that the New Testament talks a lot about sin. And the number of times the word sin appears in the New Testament is the same amount of times the word angel appears in the New Testament. You may not have thought of that. Have you thought of that? The number of times is 175. Well, I'll be honest. The word sin appears 180, and depending upon your translation, but in the Greek at least, the word angel appears between 176 and 180, depending upon how you count it. What's amazing is that the worldview, therefore, of the New Testament is that there are angels. 175 times in the New Testament, the worldview that we're given is a worldview of angels as part of reality. But I don't know if you think of reality that way. I honestly, honestly, I don't. I don't know. We're all sort of products of our age. We're all sort of raised in the, like Patrick said a few weeks ago, the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, the the culture that we live in creates a worldview. It's unavoidable. Culture creates the kind of people we are. There's no way to avoid it. And it doesn't exactly have a spiritual worldview. It's a material, physical worldview. But the Bible's worldview is radically different. And it begins with the very first page of the Bible. I don't know if you've noticed it. It's that verse, Genesis 1, 26, that talks about God creating human beings. And it says this, and here's, it says, then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along. They would rule over the whole earth. Why? Because they're created to be imagers of God, God's love, God's glory, God's ability to rule, to create, to govern with love and justice. That's what human beings were supposed to be. That's what we were created to be. But I'm not gonna talk about that so much today because what I'm more interested in is who is God talking to? Who's the us? Now you might think, well, it's, it's, I, I've been told God's a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I guess he's talking kind of to the community within himself, but would that have made any sense whatsoever to 
the person who wrote that a thousand something years before Jesus? Or the people who have been reading it for centuries before Jesus? Because nobody even talked about a trinity until after Jesus talked and came. So uh, that wouldn't have made any sense at all. That, 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 who's the us? Well, who do you think the us is that the author's talking about? And who do you think the us is that the God's people have been reading centuries before Jesus? Well, they're imagers of God. Our image. Our likeness. But humankind's not made yet. The next verse says this, verse 27 says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. But the people he's talking, well, the beings he's talking to are imagers of God, but they're pre-human. Humans haven't been created yet. But it's kind of like me saying this. It's kind of like saying, hey, you know what? Let's get pizza. Let's get pizza right now. And I call and I order the pizza and I pay for the pizza on my credit card and then you all go out and eat the pizza. But I did the pizza in the ordering and the paying sense. That's what we see in verse 27. God said, hey, let's, and he's talking, let us make people, make humans in our image and our likeness and so that they would rule over creation like we do. And then God is the one who did the creating. God's the one who created. God's the one who created and he created in his image. He's the image that all the imagers are created in. But here's what it tells you, is that long before humans were ever made, there were imagers of God that were a group of beings that existed, and we were created to be brought into that group. You see this in the, not just before human beings, but before the earth itself. In Job chapter 38, Job's an Old Testament book, and it's a, chapter 38 in the book of Job, it's one of these books that's very poetic. It's a poetic book that's trying to deal with the reality of suffering in the world, even among people who are obeying God. Incredible, unexplanatory suffering. And God is saying, the book shows that God has a behind-the-scenes thing going on that Job doesn't know, but Job's mad at God because what did he do to deserve, to deserve this? And God says, well, let me just remind you, where were you, by the way, when I created the universe? I don't remember seeing you there. And so he says this in verse four of chapter 38 to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? This is poetry. When I, laid the, when I created the earth, where were you? And then when the morning stars, now you're just gonna take my word for it, morning stars is an Old Testament euphemism metaphor for angels. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, that's parallel to morning stars, sons of God are angels as well, just take my word for it. Every time sons of God are mentioned in the Old Testament, it's always talking about angels. When the sons of God shouted for joy. So here's what that verse is saying. It, before the earth was even created, angels sang together and shouted for joy when God created the earth. So when God created the earth, angels sang together and shouted for joy. When God said, let's make human beings in our image so that they can, like you guys, be part of the imaging of God and ruling over the, the earth, uh, well, I'll tell you, not everybody received it with a lot of joy. 
one of the things the sons of God are called in the Old Testament, again, the Hebrew word is Elohim. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you, you know that the Old Testament's written in Hebrew and that the word God in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word Elohim. And so maybe you're confused, but the word Elohim is kind of a word that's singular and it can be plural. It's kind of like the English word sheep. It can be singular and it can be plural and the only way you know is by the grammar. Grammar matters and that's how you know. And so if I said the sheep is lost, you would know I'm talking about one sheep and he, it's lost. The sheep is lost because of the, the verb, the copulative verb, to be technical about it, is the word is. It's a singular sheep. If I said the sheep are lost, you know I'm talking about more than one sheep. I'm using the same subject, the sheep, but the verb is what tells you whether I'm talking plural sheep or singular sheep. Hebrew is the exact same way. And the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, is filled with all kinds of times where Elohim is meant to be translated plural. Because see, the Elohim isn't just God. God is an Elohim. But the Elohim are any beings that inhabit the spiritual realm. So God, who calls himself Yahweh, is the Hebrew name for God. Now in your English Bible, that's you know, every time you see the all capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord in all capital, that's the Hebrew name Yahweh for God. It's the Hebrew verb for he is. God named himself he is when he said he was the I am. He's the I am. He's the source of all that is. He's the source of all existence. He's the only one who's the source of all that is. He's the only one who's the giver of all life itself. He's the only one who inhabits eternity. And he's the only one who's 100% present everywhere, infinitely so, without being any less present anywhere else. He's the I am. He's, he is. He's Yahweh. That's his name. And that's the most common term for God in the Old Testament is Yahweh. Really not the word God, but his name, Yahweh. But when God appears, that's the word Elohim, and it's singular when the verb is singular, like God created mankind in his image. That's singular Yahweh. But there are spiritual beings that are plural, and it can be translated gods. And it's weird because, again, like I said, the, some of these gods, some of these Elohim that were created, you know, God's an Elohim, but none of the other Elohim are like God. He's the only Yahweh. He's the only I am. But when God created Elohim and he created them in his image and they are sons of God and they are beings that are in the, they're imagers of God, but they weren't excited when God had a plan. I want to make these little beings called humans and they're not spiritual, and they're not going to necessarily have these spiritual abilities. They're going to be part of physical creation, but I want them to rule. I want them to be in our, they're going to be like us. They're going to be in the image of God, and they're going to have these abilities to rule over and to reflect glory and to share love and to be this presence of God on earth, this image of God on earth. And there were some, we don't know how. It's not really clear in the Bible. We just know that somehow some of the Elohim weren't excited about the plan. They didn't like the competition. They didn't like somebody less than them having shared authority with them over the world. And so 
when Adam and Eve are placed into this garden, this presence of God on earth, outside of the Eden, the Garden of Eden are thorns and thistles and dust and death. That's the earth that needs to be spread with Eden. But right at some point, there's just Eden on earth. That's the presence of heaven on earth. God takes the humans, puts them in here in Eden. And then there's another Elohim in Eden. Of course there are Elohim in Eden because that's where heaven and earth meet. But this Elohim is crafty and he's tricky and he's trying to mess the whole plan up by getting the man and the woman to reject Yahweh, to reject the, to reject the word of Yahweh, to not trust Yahweh, to not wanna live for Yahweh, to wanna live for their own glory, to be insecure, and to try to have their own plan for their life, and it works. And all hell breaks loose. All of a sudden, they are exiled from Eden and out into the thorns and the thistles and the dust and the death. And the Genesis 3 world became the earth ever since. And the Elohim that was in the garden that did the whole thing got sent out as well. He got cursed as well. And we don't know how other Elohim ended up being part of this rebellion, but all of a sudden they show up in the Bible and they are. And they're, 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 they, they have power, they have authority, they have a realm where in some way they can influence the world the way an imager of God would who has been given a right to rule over God's creation. They're still here. But they are determined to keep human beings from living for Yahweh, but instead to try to get human beings to constantly uh, defile the image of God in you and to defile the image of God in other people. And so constantly they're trying to get human beings to reject Yahweh, to turn away from Yahweh, and to defile the image of Yahweh in themselves and in others. And so God says he's going to judge these gods, these Elohim. It's a strange psalm. I bet you've read it and just moved on because it didn't make any sense. It doesn't fit your worldview. It doesn't fit my worldview necessarily. But Psalm 82, verse one, God speaks to the gods. And he says this. It says, God renders judgment among the gods. Now, you might have thought the Bible teaches that the gods aren't real, that there's only one God. The Bible never teaches that. The Bible teaches that the gods are quite real. And God is judging them. Now, there's only one Yahweh. There's only one God most high. There's only one God who has created all the other beings. But there are gods. And God is rendering judgment, and he's going to sentence them to judgment one day. But here's what he says in verse 5. He says, this is what God, he says, the gods know nothing. They understand nothing. Now, you might read verses like that in the Old Testament and think, yeah, no, those aren't real. Oh, no, they're real. That's just language that means they're foolish. They're blind. They don't know reality. They don't understand reality. To have rejected Yahweh is to have rejected life itself. They know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. Now, things that don't exist don't walk about. They walk about in darkness. All the foundation, there's that phrase again we saw in Job 38, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. Why? Well, because the Elohim have fallen and they are leading the earth in darkness and blindness 
and the lack of understanding and knowledge. And so it says, I said, I, I said, you are God's Elohim. You are all sons of the Most High, the sons of God. You're sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. God is going to judge the fallen Elohim, but they're still around. They still exist in the heavenly spiritual realm. So even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes it, and he uses words, Bible scholars will tell you he's talking about the fallen Elohim when he uses words like this. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against things we see, it's not against flesh and blood. I mean, it is, but it isn't. Our, flesh and, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the fallen Elohim, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces, the Elohim, of evil in the heavenly realm. This is the reality the New Testament says we live in right now. I don't know. I don't know if you think of life that way. I don't know if you're thinking of life that you're living in a realm where there are spiritual beings and there are spiritual beings who are forces of darkness in the heavenly realm. They're rulers, they're authorities, they're powers, they're sons of God, they're images of God, and they are quite determined to ruin your life, to keep you from living out the image of God on you because they hate it and they hate you. And so they want to get you to reject Yahweh. They want to get you to live for yourself and your own glory. There are other who are, we, we call them angels. They're, again, the Elohim who are like Gabriel and like the angels who appeared the night that Jesus was born and they're glorifying God and they're praising God because they know there's something about God becoming human. They don't know what's going to happen. The Bible says that. In 1 Peter 1.12, they're watching it all happen just like anybody else, but they know God is really up to something with God becoming the Messiah, the, the Savior, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, whose kingdom will... They know in some way he's going to reverse Genesis 3. He's going to reverse the Genesis 3 world. And so when Jesus is born, this multitude of the host of heaven, these Elohim that haven't fallen, are rejoicing and praising Yahweh... And the fallen Elohim are trying to kill babies because they're trying to get Herod to make sure Jesus doesn't live past the age of two. That's the story we're reading in the Bible, and that's the story that's happening in your life. But when Jesus finally was crucified, and they didn't know this is what they were doing when they did it, Paul says, if they'd have known, they wouldn't have done it, but they, they crucified Jesus, the fallen Elohim did. And when that happened, it started the process of reversing Genesis 3. That's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. He says this, verse 15, that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities. He's talking about the fallen Elohim, triumphing over them by the cross. I don't know how it was, but somehow when Jesus, when God, the perfect human, the righteous human, the true son of God, the son of the most high, the, when he died on the cross, somehow in a body, a real human body, when he died on the cross, he brought the Genesis 3 world down into the grave with him. He brought the thorns and the thistles and the dust and the death into the grave with him. And somehow he broke through the other side. And when he rose from the dead, he left the Genesis 3 world in the grave and he began the new creation through a new body. It's already begun. 
And the Apostle Paul says when that happened, he says in Ephesians chapter one, when God raised Christ from the dead, he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above, well, here's those words again, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, all the fallen Elohim. A man now has taken back Genesis 3. A man has taken the throne God intended for man and human beings, mankind, in Genesis 1:26, both male and female in the image of God. Now a man sits there, the righteous man, the resurrected man, the king, the son of God, whose kingdom will never end, sits at the right hand of God, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come, forever. This is the story of the gospel. This is the story Jesus was born into. Right here in this room, everything we try to do in this worship service, we're trying to create a moment of worship, like Grady said, that displays beauty and goodness and truth in the worship of Yahweh. And the people you see up here, the singers, here comes Grady, here comes Raphael, here comes Monica. These are the people that you see up here that are praising and worshiping Yahweh. And that's what we see. These are the people on stage. But that is not the only thing happening here. Because right in that room over there, you can't see him, there's Brad, and he's in there mixing all the sound of the music so that you people who are watching online, when you listen to it on your TV sound system, it sounds really, really good. He's mixing it in there for your sound system. Now, that would sound horrible in here. So he sends that signal to Ben right back there, and Ben takes that signal and he modifies it to make it sound better in here. And then next to Ben, there's a person doing lights to make sure that you can see in an artistic way, kind of like stained glass windows used to be centuries ago. You can see in a way that shows the light and the beauty and the glory of God because we're worshiping Yahweh artistically. We're doing it just like the best artists when God had him build the temple in Exodus. It matters to do these things artistically. There's a guy standing up back there who's doing the slides. There's a person back there who's calling all the shots. There are three people right there on cameras. I did it a few weeks ago. It's chaos. There's a voice in their head the whole time telling them, shoot, you know, zoom in here, do that. They don't even know what happened in this worship service. They're just doing camera the whole time. And there's somebody in there named Chris who's watching on the screen and he's picking which shots that you see at what time. And there's somebody next to Chris that's actually doing the switching. And then there's somebody there to make sure that the lighting is happening so it's not too bright and too dark depending upon the camera. And so it all looks consistent for you. And there's Braden who's making sure it's going out on the internet. There's all these people behind the scenes to make sure that what you see happens up here happens with beauty and goodness and truth, but they're happening in parallel to one another. And that's what the Bible says is happening with us created in the image of God and with the Elohim, fallen Elohim, and with the Elohim who are the host of heaven, who are rejoicing at the gospel and look forward, longing to hear, longing to look into how this story is going to unfold. Here's what Jesus did when he rose from the dead. He's offering every single human being a second chance. A second chance in the garden. A second chance not to be fooled. A second chance not to turn away this, every tree that's pleasing to the eye and good for food and to focus on the one scarcity I can't have and to reject Yahweh for some Elohim who just wants to destroy me. I have a second chance. You have a second chance. 
I want to choose Yahweh, don't you? I want to choose Yahweh. I want Yahweh who became human in the person of Jesus, who died on the cross to suck the Genesis 3 world down with him and bring back the glory of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. That's what he offers all of us. And so every moment, I don't want to defile the image of God in me. I don't want to defile the image of God in you. I want to choose Yahweh. I want to worship Yahweh. And I'm telling right now, I can tell by your faces that I don't know where you are, who you came in with, but you do too. So let's stand right now and worship Yahweh together. Amen.